You have jacked in to 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 27, The Human Touch. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is, of course, Jinteki Personal Evolution, the core set identity for the faction, which in Reboot is a 4517 ID, has 17 available influence. The ability is whenever an agenda is scored or stolen, do one net damage. And the flavor text, which takes the form of a corporate motto, perhaps, or logo, when you need the human touch. And the reason I have selected this is because I'm finally up to the point in the history of the game where we've reached the classic article by Jeff Hollis on the subject of work compression. So that's going to be one of the big pieces of this episode. The other big piece is going to be uh, another article with a deck list and regional report with a runner deck list for an Andromeda tag me style build. But we'll start with a different kind of anonymous tip. Anonymous tip. The jargon of Netrunner. This comes from a Board Game Geek blog at the time, back in June of 2013, called Easy Mark, Netrunner for Beginners by D.C., username Dim Sum Boy. And this received 120 thumbs or likes on Board Game Geek, which is a lot. So a lot of people found this to be a useful post. I am going to edit it down and weed it out a little, but of course I'll provide the link in the show notes if you want to see the whole thing. So I thought it would be a good beginner topic to cover the ever-expanding jargon of Netrunner. And by jargon, I don't mean R&D and HQ and stuff that is basic to the game. I mean those words that you see all the time on the forum, and if you're new to the game like I was, you really wonder what they mean. I know there are threads spread around with definitions, but often it's hard to find these things, so here's my little beginner's guide to some of the jargon. Meta stands for metagame. This is perhaps the most nebulous of terms used very widely. Strictly speaking, it refers to strategy, actions, or methods that define a game. More simply, it refers to the decks and deck archetypes and strategies that are popular at any given time or in a given region. Knowing the local meta allows a player to predict what cards and deck types they might face and thus play advantageously. Some people also use meta in the wider sense to refer to design decisions and even release schedules of FFG. By releasing certain cards in certain orders, FFG is perhaps trying to intentionally or unintentionally, alter the meta of the Netrunner community as a whole by swinging game and deck design toward particular styles of play. For example, the next deluxe expansion is going to be strong for HB and Shaper, so perhaps we will see a big shift in the meta towards mostly HB and Shaper decks. Jinteki is least popular right now, So if they released a few really good cards for them, you might see the meta shift towards more Jinteki. Splash. When someone refers to splashing a card into their deck, it means taking an out-of-faction card. So for example, a Shaper Kate deck that uses Inside Job could be said to be splashing Inside Job. That's a pretty easy one. Same can go for corporations. An NBN using Eli 1.0 from HB is splashing Eli 1.0. Mill or milling. 
This refers to the old Magic the Gathering card, Millstone. This card had the ability to cause the player to discard cards off the top of the deck into the discard. So, Noise is usually the identity that goes with Mill decks because of his natural ability to cause Corporation to discard every time he installs a virus. Tutor, or Tutoring. This is again a Magic the Gathering reference to the card Demonic Tutor. This card lets you search your deck for a card and put it into your hand. The cards in Netrunner, like Special Order, Test Run, etc. People say you can tutor for a breaker using Special Order, for example. That's the origin of that. Fast Advance This deck type is one where the corporation attempts to install, advance, and score an agenda all in one turn, thereby not allowing the runner a chance to run that server and steal it. Note that Fast Advance does not mean trying to win very quickly overall. In fact, one could argue that Fast Advance requires quite a lot of setup and decent amount of resources to be successful. Rush These types of corporation decks often try and win very quickly before runner can set up, so there's a distinction between Rush and Fast Advance. Face Check This refers to the runner running into an ice to get the corporation to res it to find out what it is, rather than using a method of infiltration or exposed cards. Tempo. Tempo is a difficult term. Tempo literally means speed. In Netrunner, people use the term when considering how their play speed is compared to the other player. Commonly used to refer to plays whereby you have caused the other player to perhaps use up a turn recovering from an attack of some kind. For example, a runner hits a snare, resulting in three lost cards and a tag. This is a loss in tempo on the runner's side, as his next turn will likely involve using a click and two credits to remove the tag and then redrawing some cards. Or a tempo gain by the corp. This is a great opportunity for the corp to play out an agenda as the runner is recovering. These are changes in tempo. R&D Lock A runner strategy whereby the runner ensures they always access the top cards in R&D so that the corporation cannot draw an agenda. Many ways to achieve it. Lots of new cards help runner to reorder cards in R&D and other sort of R&D manipulations. Tag Me A runner that has built his deck around not caring about tags. This means no resources or at least no important resources, or some kind of tag removal, or plascrete for damage avoidance. Time Walk This refers to the classic Magic the Gathering card. When Corporation spends a whole turn wiping virus counters, it's like the runner has a second turn, so it's said he has time walked. Aggro Deck Another term with origins from magic makes reference to magic deck where there's lots of tiny creatures with constant attacks. In Netrunner, it refers to those runners that are constantly running and attacking, uh, like Gabriel deck with account siphons, inside jobs, always running. Commonly can be used to refer to other runners splashing those cards to create an aggressive deck. Top deck. To top-deck a card means to draw an important or wanted card, naturally, off the top of the R&D with the corporation's mandatory draw. For example, you need one more agenda to win, and as your mandatory draw, you draw that last agenda you needed. That's top-decking. can refer to runner as well, I guess, even though you have to spend a click to draw. For example, you really need a corroder to hit a server, and you spend a click to draw and get the corroder. And I'll just add, it also would naturally apply to the runner accessing R&D and drawing the winning card off the top. And then he has several other terms that I'm not going to read. They include tag and bag, out of hand, denial, hail mary run, R&D dig, turbo rig, big ice, face plant, card advantage, noise shop, shell game, PSF lock, never advance, 
economy, drip economy, burst economy, osaurus, scorched, and fixed breakers. But uh, if you want to read that stuff, you'll have to go to the article. Archived Memories, Jinteki, and Work Compression. This is sort of an entire article that is built around understanding how to play Jinteki, since Jinteki functions very differently from the other corporations. It's written by Jeff Hollis. The original post was My Secret Love Affair with Jinteki Personal Evolution, which was more of a flavor-based post that directed to his Board Game Geek blog, where this article was presented. It was since cross-posted, or later cross-posted, onto Stimhack, and I'll provide the link to the Stimhack article. It's from May 29th of 2013. I have a confession. I have pretty much exclusively been playing Jinteki for the past three months. One of the reasons I haven't put out a video recently is that I just don't have any footage I want to show anyone. Call me greedy. I've been wanting to keep my tricks secret, at least until after regionals. Gradius 05 recently won the 26-person regional in Plano, Texas, running a corp deck very similar to the one I've been working on for the past few months. In fact, I think he went undefeated as corp. I've really, really been wanting to do some shop talk about Jinteki for a while now, and I think I'm finally going to break down and spill my guts. I'm going to discuss a Jinteki personal evolution deck I have been refining for the past few months. Starting Observations Okay, so first we need to make some observations about Jinteki. From a traditional perspective of what makes a good corporation, Jinteki is a hot mess. One, from an economic perspective, Jinteki has terrible ice. Most is cost-efficient for the runner to deal with. For example, Wall of Thorns versus Heimdall or Tollbooth. The one exception is Chum, but that has other problems, particularly Yogsucker problems. Two, from a security perspective, Jinteki has terrible ice. Wall of Thorns is the only ice with a clear end the run on it, but as already established, Thorns has some other serious problems. Three, Jinteki has terrible in-faction economy. Akitaro and dedicated server do not give you any cash flow. You cannot directly use them to advance agendas. They are also both fragile and inconsistent. Four, tricky and trappy cards gain value the longer the game goes on. Longer time equals more opportunities for combos to go off. Jinteki has lots of tricky and trappy cards. However, neither its economy nor ice support long games. So what's a corp to do? You want better ice, right? So you import them from other factions. But then you also need economy to support those ice, so you import it from other factions? There's a serious problem here. Jinteki needs ice and economy from out of faction, but really doesn't have the influence to take both. So run neutral asset economy like PAD and private contracts. Well, the problem is that since your ice is so cheap to break, the runner is always going to have extra credits for trashing these things with impunity. If you defend these cards with ice, you will end up digging yourself into a deeper economic hole. Runner economies are just really, really good. HB, Core, and Wayland may be able to win an economic contest against runners sometimes, but Jinteki will almost certainly always lose a game if it comes to that. Magnum Opus is everywhere. Cotty Jones, too. Account Siphon is a gigantic kick in the face. The runner will force it to come to an economic war if she can. But Jinteki does have a very interesting tool. The best term I have for it is work compression. Jinteki can do a lot of little work here and there over many turns, each step requiring a single click and small credit investment and then force the runner to match them click for click for that work within a single turn, or A, die, else B, let the corpse score an agenda. I'm talking about cards like Snare, Datamine, Ronin, Hokusai Grid, 
neural EMP, false lead, Nisei Mark II, and fetal AI. Project Junebug can be work compression if the runner runs on it. Edge of World reduces how much work compression you have to make the runner suffer for you as the corp to capitalize. Runners do have many tools to combat work compression. Doppelganger, All-Nighter, Public Sympathy, NetShield, Joshua B., Diesel, and Quality Time all come to mind. However, few of these cards are runner essentials, whereas cards like Magnum Opus and Cotty Jones are. Jinteki Misconceptions I'm going to be a jerk. Many, most, people I hear talking up Jinteki are inexperienced, slash naive, slash misinformed, slash delusional concerning Jinteki's strengths and the prowess of their Jedi mind tricks. In theory, chum plus unresed neural katana or data raven is amazing. In practice, you will never pull those combos off against a good runner. Stop thinking about cards in terms of their best case potential. Start thinking about cards in terms of their average case potential. In theory, running all two-point agendas makes sense. Thus, more opportunity to flatline the runner, more sources of net damage, and extra chances of completely decking the runner. In practice, homogenizing your agenda point values takes away your ability to make the runner suffer from work compression. Decking the runner is a theoretical possibility, but not actually a realistic outcome. In theory, getting a runner to run on a double-advanced June bug nets four cards. In practice, good runner decks are robust to losing specific cards. Good runner decks can make use of anything and rely on no specific card to function. In fact, double-advanced June bugs tend to be negative work compression. That is, if the runner is getting one card per click, and your only source of income is one credit per click, you are costing the runner five clicks at the expense of a six-credit difference to not playing the June bug at all. In theory, triple-advanced June bugs flatline a runner straight up. In practice, you are only getting the runner to run on triple-advanced June bugs in very edge cases. You cannot realistically treat it as a play in your playbook. In theory, it would be cool if you could actually see a person's soul by looking deep into their eyes or read their darkest secrets off the twitches and ticks of their body. Sorry, you probably cannot. Unless you have had decades of formal, immersive experience with reading body language, you are no better than chance at inferring intentions from body language. If you believe otherwise, the better explanation is that you have a confirmation bias. I am not saying that inferring dispositions and intentions from behavior is impossible. There is a vast literature on this topic that says it is actually a very systematic process. But anyone who presents it as mysticism, some sort of ritualistic slash prophetic skill, or the key ingredient to success, is full of crap. The variant of this is that Jinteki is all about mind games. No. Again, the best explanation is that people are simply falling prey to confirmation bias. Netrunner is a very structurally rich game. The vast majority of players will not share an appreciable amount of knowledge overlap with you. That knowledge overlap is required for mind games to be effective. There are certainly exceptions. Everyone pulls off the brilliant play every now and then and extensive past history with a specific opponent changes things. But most people who say that mind games are a big part about playing Jinteki well are simply being naive slash unrealistically optimistic. Sorry. I do not consider these serious points about Jinteki. However, I feel obligated to do lip service to the idea since I see them surprisingly and distressingly Often. Defining work compression. 
Hint, the most important point in this post. Okay, getting back on track. Jinteki's most interesting tool is a form of work compression. If you would like a concrete definition of that, I'm using work compression to mean the ability to use clicks for actions across multiple turns, and then to force the runner to match you click for click within the space of a runner's single turn. Economic bullying is a form of work compression exemplified by ASH and or deep servers. However, Jinteki usually sucks at that form of work compression. They do work compression through the runner's hand size, in the case of Jinteki PE, or more directly, in terms of clicks, in the case of Jinteki RP. The corporation's scored agenda points have an interesting interaction on work compression. Once the corporation gets to match point, the runner needs to start being very aggressive about trying to fulfill every work compression condition that might result in an agenda scored. If the runner is not, the corp can very easily exploit the fact and win. Building and playing my Jinteki deck. So, this led me to a few ideas to keep in mind when building a Jinteki deck. One, a good Jinteki deck will need to be fast. The sooner you get to match point, the more you can exploit the runner into taking work compression risks. Note, this is completely counter to running all two-point agendas. You are going to need to run three-point agendas. Two, a good Jinteki deck will not allow the runner to pay the costs of work compression using credits. You can always expect the runner to have a bank of credits since your ice is so terrible economically. Don't fall for that trap. 3. Good play will not involve applying a steady stream of pressure on the runner's work, whether that's click work or hand size work. Good play will involve very bursty pressure. There are going to be lots of tempo swings within Jinteki games. 4. Some of your main tools for applying work compression on the runner, for example, snare, require credits to activate. You will need a way to consistently float six to eight credits if you expect to perform well. With these things in mind, here is my current Jinteki Personal Evolution deck. Agendas. Agendas. Two, false lead. Two, priority requisition. Three, brain trust. Three, fetal AI. Assets. Two, Melange Mining Corp. Three, Ronin. Three, Snare. Ice. Three, Chum. Three, Data Mine. Three, Neural Katana. Two, Enigma. Two, Wall of Static. One, Roto Turret from HB. Three, and a pop-up window from NBN. Two, Caduceus from Wayland. Operations. Three, Hedge Fund. Three, Neural EMP. Three, Beanstalk Royalties from Wayland. One, Scorched Earth from Wayland. Upgrades. Two, Hokusai Grid. Here is the starting game plan for the deck. 1. Your economic ice, pop-up, caduceus, are preferentially going on R&D. 2. If you are up against a criminal runner, you want an ice in front of HQ as well, preferably Neuro Katana, on the first turn. You might lose an agenda, but the loss of three cards will give you breathing room to score an agenda for yourself shortly afterward. Chum plus X is a very powerful remote server. If you are not up against criminal or a known account siphon player, don't even bother defending HQ. Let the implied threat of snare in an undefended HQ work to your advantage. 3. Your top priority is rushing to match point. 
your ice is dead cheap. If you get lucky and score a chum in your opening hand, the practical cost of your remote server is one credit until the runner's rig is assembled. If money is tight, you might opt not to res non-economic ice protecting central servers. 4. Once you are on match point, your game plan may change. If the runner's rig still is not complete, you are rushing out a last agenda. If the runner's rig is complete, you are instead trying to orchestrate a situation where you can put the runner under a massive amount of work compression in a single turn. This is going to involve some very meticulous setup with data mines, fetal AIs, and maybe a timely hit of snare on R&D. At this point, the runner is usually panicking and trying to control R&D. Snares and fetals in R&D work to your advantage. You might start defending R&D with a few ice, but more importantly, you want to be consistently floating six to eight credits so you can capitalize on opportunities to apply work compression. Lessons learned through trial and error. Do not try to bait the runner into running a snare face down in a remote server if you cannot follow that up with a kill. Do lay down brain trust, fetal AI, and snare undefended when you are on match point, are sitting on 8 plus credits, and the runner only has 4 cards in hand. Do not install advance advance fetal AI unless you are on match point or have no other agendas in hand and the runner gives you an opening for an uncontested score. Now I'll mention that of course, fetal AI now only requires four advancements, not five, in Reboot. Do consider playing fetal AI and advancing it once. If the runner has four or fewer credits in hand, you have Hokusai Grid, priority requisition sitting in hand, eight plus credits, and two data mines and or two neural EMPs. Do not play Ronin early. Your priority is scoring agendas, not killing the runner. Killing the runner is the consequence of work compression, and that is something best applied when you are on match point. Do play Ronin face down in a server when the runner is at three to four cards in hand, and you still have four plus snares or fetal AIs in R&D and a couple neural EMPs in hand. Next turn, proceed to advance it three times and leave it. Start building a new server afterward. Do not play single cards in unprotected remote servers. Do play three cards in separate unprotected remote servers if one, there is a permutation of cards that would threaten the runner's life by hitting two of them, in a turn. Two, at least one of those cards is actually part of that permutation. And three, you can get value out of the runner not running at least one of those cards. Do not late game bluff with priority requisition when the runner has a full grip. Do late game bluff with priority requisition always when the runner is sitting on three or fewer cards in hand. For that matter, do this with any advanceable card. Evaluation. So, how does this deck perform? I have been having ridiculous success with it. DB0 recently released the 40,000 game anonymized Octagon dataset. I managed to figure out which user ID corresponded to me. Not that hard. There is only one person who has been obsessively playing Jinteki PE for the past three months and calculated my win rate. I filtered out my first 30 games with the identity. They were largely trial error learning, and I was making lots of poor plays. That still left me with something like 130-ish games to look at. My overall win rate with the deck was 74%. Of those 130-ish games, 
by win rate against experienced players was about 65% over 30-ish games. For comparison, my win rate with HB against the same group of experienced players is only about 45%. So, is this deck the Holy Grail? No. It is a very strong deck. However, it has some serious shortcomings. Public Sympathy single-handedly shuts this deck down. So does Netshield. Netshield still isn't seeing a lot of play, but Public Sympathy is getting table time. It makes the job of applying work compression on the runner's hand incredibly difficult. Crypsis can be an annoyance. He prevents the net damage of data mine, but he doesn't always prevent the work compression of data mine since you have to load Crypsis with a virus counter first. The trick is to catch Crypsis when he has no virus counters loaded on him. Darwin, on the other hand, is a serious issue. Darwin will probably be seeing lots of playtime in the next couple months. He's interesting and fun to tinker with. This deck may not pass the Gabe test. Although my win rate is about 65% against non-Gabing experienced players, it drops to about 45% when only looking at Gabe games. Don't get me wrong, that's still pretty good. It's just not stellar. This deck presents many opportunities for the corporation to make critical mistakes. After playing about 200 games with it, I still make a serious blunder every five or six games. I did not really begin having success with this deck until I played it about 30 times. Even now, I am constantly refining my play with it. To play this deck well, you need to constantly track the number of cards in the runner's hand. This can prove to be a hindrance in face-to-face -face play. Asking a person their hand size can give away your intentions if you're not careful. This deck suffers severely from a corporation repeat play effect. As such, I have a few variants of it that substitute the Ronins for June Bugs or Edge of World. Occasionally, I will also splash in an Archer. I almost always regret the Archer. The Singleton Scorched Earth may seem out of place. I assure you, it has pulled its weight for a long period of time. About a third of my wins against Gabe involve that single Scorched Earth, and about a fifth of my wins against other runners involve its presence. That said, Cotty Jones plus resource-heavy Andromeda decks really diminish its value against the range of runner decks you might see. I am definitely thinking about taking it out. I am well past a 3,000 word count. This seems like a good place to stop. Experiential Data Tag me, Andy. According to Anchor, which is the Android Netrunner Compendium of Unofficial Rules, that's an acronym, Tag Me is a runner strategy that aims to play with aggressive tempo by ignoring any tags they get from the corp or from their own cards and mitigating the impact those tags have on them. Strategy Two defining features of Tag Me decks is they run three copies of Plascrete Carapace to protect against Scorched Earth ASAP, and they do not rely on keeping any resources out across corp turns since they can be trashed any time while tagged. Also, these decks typically seek to gain from ignoring tags, either by playing powerful runner cards that give tags like Account Siphon and Vamp, or by using cards that require the runner to be tagged, like Data Leak Reversal. That being said, in June of 2013, after the release of Future Proof, we had a 27-player regional tournament in... Portland, I want to say, yes, which had a lot of Andromeda decks. I'm going to share a two decks, actually. One is from Justin Duggar, who made the cut to top eight, and the other one is from Alex Frog, again, who I believe was top of the heap before the cut. So the first deck from Justin Duggar is Andromeda, More Money. It has 28 events. 
three account siphon, three easy mark, three emergency shutdown, three infiltration, three inside job, three sure gamble, two forged activation orders, two special order. Also three modded from Shaper and three quality time from Shaper. Six hardware, two Desperado, two HQ interface, two Plascrete carapace. Only two resources, two bank job, only five icebreakers, one corroder from Anarch, one ferry, and three Crypsis, and then four other programs, two Sneak Door Beta and two Magnum Opus from Shaper. Here are his comments. There's a lot of Yogi Berra, nobody goes there because it's always packed, metagame circular logic. Nobody plays bank job because everyone ices remotes because everyone plays bank job. I was hoping PDX, I guess that's Portland, Meta, had settled on undefended econ assets, and it mostly worked out. But I think every criminal player I faced up correctly guessed the Meta, and also ran bank job. This worked well for me, given that I had no assets. Similarly, E3 feedback. Nobody plays bioroids because E3 crushes them, no matter their strength, so I didn't run E3. Eli might have shifted the equation some, as it's far cheaper than Heimdall for roughly the same effect. It'll be interesting to see how the CNC 2.0 bioroids play out. R&D interface out of faction is surprisingly cheap and worthwhile, especially in Gabe, where Corp is more worried about protecting HQ. It might be worth replacing Magnum for, as that would simultaneously solve MU pressure, and provide some kind of extra reward on R&D and reason for Corp to defend it harder. I didn't seem like enough information for an entire segment, so that's why I included this other deck from Alex Frog, Alex Rockwell, uh, Data Sucker Andromeda. He's got 12 programs, two Corroder from Anarch, two Yogg from Anarch, three Data Sucker from Anarch, two Crypsis, two Fairy, and one Femme Fatale. Uh, nine Hardware, three R&D Interface from Shaper, three Desperado, two Plascrete Carapace, and one E3 Implants. Only 17 Events, three Account Siphon, three Emergency Shutdown, two Inside Job, three Sure Gamble, three Easy Mark, two Special Order, one Infiltration. I'm just reading them as they're listed here. They seem to be in no kind of order. And seven resources, two Cotty Jones, three Compromised Employee, and two Bank Job. And he has many more comments to make. I only took a portion of his very lengthy article. In testing runner decks, I came to the following conclusions. Criminal is the strongest faction right now. While it has the weakest late game, its late game with R&D interface is still good. Its early game is far stronger than Anarch or Shaper. R&D Interface is the strongest late-game plan available to Shapers or Criminals. Anarchs have medium. The R&D Interface lock provides Criminals with the needed late-game. You can basically make a runner deck, and if you put in three R&D Interface, and you have some economy and some breakers, then your late-game plan is secure. This means you can focus the rest of the deck on pressuring the opponent. A combination of Criminal Pressure with the R&D interface late-game plan, is very strong. Desperado is at the heart of the strategy and provides sustained economy while you attack. It is so good that I am much happier with the starting hand of two Desperados, wasting one, than with a hand of zero. Thus, three of them are required, even though this will result in discards. Turn one, discardable cards are perfectly okay for Andromeda. It lets her run or activate a turn one Cotty Jones. I'm going to insert this just briefly as a reminder. Desperado and Reboot does not have memory attached. So that very possibly affects some of the configuration here, considering how many you what you're going to want all of these programs out. You might just also need to run some memory. Desper oh, I read that part. Data Sucker is simply too strong in the criminal strategy to not play. It combos with Desperado to provide incredible value for doing the thing you want to be doing. 
running. It is needed to make the best code gate breaker, YOG, into an unstoppable force. It makes running efficient and degrades the central server defense of the corp immensely. As a result of playing Data Sucker and Desperado, we want our economy to be low click intensive. Armitage is weak, although again, not as weak in Reboot. Magnum Opus won't work with the Data Suckers eating MU. Bank job is strong when you can run efficiently and get one credit from Desperado. Cuddy is useful. As a result of Data Sucker eating MU and providing pressure on archives, it forces icing of archives because Data Sucker and Desperado lets you run an undefended archives for way too much value. Sneak Door is less strong. It provides significant anti synergy with Data Sucker. Data Sucker is generally the stronger card, so Sneak Door got cut. Without Sneak Door, HQ Interface is not strong enough. It was also cut. This really helps to focus your setup on the R&D interface plan and provide deck space for utility cards and early pressure. Emergency Shutdown, while not as good without Sneak Door, is still strong. You can play it after an account siphon to break the corpse back. Even played on a 3-credit ice, it's decent, but the ability to crush 8-credit ice or archers with it is essential in some matchups. I have had good players that I respect cut it from this deck. I think they are making a large mistake. Possibly their dislike of it was based around playing Underworld Contact and then having to remove account siphon tags. This leaves them too click poor to pull off the account siphon, shut down, shut down, run your remote for free turns that I get to perform. Also, they weren't playing compromised employee. I strongly feel that the strategy of being able to ignore tags is the way to go, and that emergency shutdown and compromised employee are good in that strategy. The plan of ignoring account siphon tags and other tags and having Plascrate is incredibly strong. It basically causes your siphons to provide six credits of extra economy versus having to remove tags. Because this plan is so strong, it makes long-term resources unattractive to this strategy. Akati Jones played early, used five times to provide a huge burst of mid-game economy, is still decent. Often, the corp will then spend the two credits in a click killing it. If they don't, one click to add three credits to it will often force them to do this, essentially making it a better armitage that drains the corp some once you go into infinite tags mode. However, it is not always correct to go into infinite tags mode, especially against NBN. This is a strategic decision, not an automatic. Underworld Contacts I didn't play them. They are okay. I explained in a recent post why I feel they are borderline. In the end, I cut them because they didn't feel they didn't play well with the ignore tags strategy. And again, uh, they don't play as well with Andromeda now that she does not have a link. Bank job is amazing in the current meta. Every opponent I played either provided me a free target to bank job or something I could bank job with only one ice for about two credits, even paying two for the run. A bank job ends up costing two clicks to play and giving six with a desperado. That's like a sure gamble and a two-credit click. I wish I'd played three. In a world where HB sticks out undefended EVE campaigns, Wayland might put out dedicated response teams and NBN is more prevalent with its marked accounts, bank job is almost always usable. I think it needs to return to people's decks in a big way. Bank Job was one of the best cards in my deck all day. In the Ignore Tags strategy, it is nice to have economy resources like Bank Job that get used right away and don't stay in play, vulnerable, to provide their value. Fairy is like an economy card that breaks one sentry. It lets you run without fear identify what ice is, and find a good fem target safely. It's great to crush oversight AI'd ice. In one game, my opponent oversight AI'd multiple flares. At one point, 
My favorite play of the day was that with only a few credits on me, and an opponent who could afford to power up the trace if needed, I went, special order for fairy, fairy, run, break it for four. God is breaking news. First time I've ever special ordered for fairy. Femme would have been too expensive. Compromise employee is a part economy card, part link card, which usually has provided enough value by the time you siphon the opponent and accept tags that it's not worth trashing. It also makes emergency shutdown even better. In the end, I chose it over the Underworld Contact GlobalSec engine. I chose this as a way to provide part of the economy, most of the link boost, and to save deck space. The Breakers The Anarch Breakers are simply better than other Breakers, at least if you have Data Sucker, and Crypsis provides excellent backup. I wanted to keep one Fem in the deck just in case, as it can be tutored for and is good late game. Mimic was a consideration, and is strong. However, I felt that all 15 points of my influence is currently spent on things that are absolutely essential, and that Criminal has decent sentry breakers, so I might as well use them. E3 was excellent any time I drew it, and I wasn't even playing against HB. Facing Jinteki and NBN decks with Ichi and Eli, I pretty much always wanted this. I would definitely include E3 in decks right now. Though maybe it will get worse when the 2.0 Bioroids come out and it requires two clicks to use. I actually didn't draw my E3 much, but I was frequently wishing it would appear. When I did draw it, I liked it a lot. Plazcrete was critical in several matches during the day. It actively prevented two losses and allowed me to accept tags I would have had to remove in a couple other games. Additionally, the lack of Plascrete cost me a game due to being scorched, so its inclusion was highly justified. And so there are a couple of Tag Me Andromeda deck lists from the same Portland Regional in June of 2013. The Maker's Eye. A quick section on Reza Ilyasa, an Indonesian artist who only provided three cards for Netrunner, and they all came in Future Proof. They are R&D Interface, Dedicated Response Team, and Burke Bugs. Uh, you can visit his pages at the Deviant Art and ArtStation websites. I'll provide links in the show notes. I do like the R&D interface uh, artwork. It's just, um, I don't know. It's just nice and normal. And Burke Bugs, of course, sees lots of use because it's the greatest ice of all time. Anyway, many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action, and the website is netrunner2.1.com. You can go to our Reboot Discord server. We have a channel for the 2.1 group. It doesn't see a whole lot of action, but... I'm hoping that that changes a little bit once creation and control and then especially opening moves come around and people might have more interest in playing in the 2.1 group with Jackson. Uh, that's, that's still about a month away from the recording of this episode. But anyway, you can play online yourself there at retechie.fun. Find going to the Discord server helps you find the games. Or you can find all contact information for me across various websites in the show notes as well. The AstroScript pilot program this time around returns us to the worlds of Android for part two in the section about clones, where we talk about one particular line of clones. Uh, there are several little mini articles about a few different clone lines, and so we'll get to those, well, not over the next few weeks, because next week we'll be getting into creation and control, and it has its own flavor text provided inside the box. But eventually we'll get back to the worlds of Android book. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Henry Line Even before the advent of the modern assembly line, 
humans have worked in dangerous conditions performing the most arduous of tasks. Underground mining operations are beleaguered by the threat of cave-ins, toxic gas buildup, or vehicle failure. Intolerable ranges of pressure, radiation, and temperature plague even routine maintenance jobs in space, and exposure to toxic compounds during waste reclamation or recycling present an unreasonable danger for human workers. Clones are a highly effective tool for addressing such challenges. They can perform as well as, if not better, than their human counterparts and are more easily replaced. And unlike bioroids, clones need not sacrifice the human intuition, judgment, and ingenuity that are so critical to a job done well and safely. The Henry line is Gentechi's answer to Haas bioroids, Steiger, and Rex models. Named for the American icon John Henry, the steel-driving man, the Henry line is immediately identifiable by its physical prowess. Although relatively short in stature, all Henrys maintain a highly muscled physique. Work schedules for these clones are physically challenging, which largely alleviates any need for an exercise regimen to maintain their muscle mass. The warranty terms for the Henry line permit these clones to perform physically demanding labor on a daily basis for up to 18 hours each day. The only necessary concession to this workload is that they receive at least three 15-minute breaks over the course of each workday. The Henry Line's physical capabilities are complemented by a mindset that is ideally suited to pursuing the associated workload. Henrys are not mindless automata. They actually score average or above on most tests of cognitive ability. The key difference between Henrys and typical humans is that the clones take pleasure in repetitive tasks. Work usually considered to be drudgery is instead highly engaging. Genteki trumpets this feature as a result of careful mental conditioning meant to complement the Henry's basic genetic template. The result is a workforce that is rarely bored and is inherently fulfilled by its job duties. In short, they are the perfect grunt worker, which explains why they are the laborer of choice for melange mining's helium-3 mines. Genetic Features Henry's incorporate a variety of different genetic enhancements to supplement their primary design goals of physical aptitude and resilience. Their muscle fibers are exceptionally densely formed, which grants them the capability to exert substantially more force than a comparably sized muscle from an average human. Genteki proudly advertises that Henry Line myofibrils incorporate protein structures that are entirely proprietary. These tissues utilize structures that were obtained from natural sources, but were synthetically redesigned to function at levels beyond normal expectations. Similar modifications have been integrated into the Henry's skeletal system, as well as into several organs to optimize the body's metabolism and productivity. In most biological systems, modifications that are intended to focus a creature's overall strength have clear consequences. This often means that an exceptionally powerful muscle or bones are prone to damage when subjected to stressors from an unexpected direction. Genteki recognized this risk at the design stage for the Henry line and moved to address it. Its solution was to substantially increase the rate at which the Henry's body reconstructs itself. These clones reconstruct bone and muscle mass at a rate more than five times the speed of a 20-year-old human. The augmented reconstruction rate 
also means they have a very efficient healing rate, allowing them to recover from injuries far more rapidly than a natural human. Consequently, Henrys require a commensurately higher caloric intake, one on the order of approximately five to 6,000 calories per day. A particularly efficient digestive tract helps to offset this requirement, but Henrys cannot survive for an extended period of time on a diet that would be healthy for an unaugmented human of comparable size and mass. Instead, they are dependent upon prepackaged meals ordered directly from a Gentecki-approved supplier. Genetically male, Henry clones produce an exceptionally high level of testosterone during the maturation process. This plays a key role in their physiological development by causing the clones to put on muscle mass much more quickly during their growth phase. However, preliminary tests indicated that this heightened level of testosterone created disruptions in the work environment. Henry's became particularly competitive and even aggressive under stressful situations. To combat this undesired side effect, Henry's are surgically neutered prior to decanting. Lower-level testosterone treatments are routinely incorporated into their meals to aid them in maintaining muscle mass. Other Enhancements Clones from the Henry line are routinely assigned to work in environments where the breathable atmosphere is of questionable integrity. To ensure long-term viability, nasal and tracheal filters are surgically incorporated into the design prior to decanting. These filters must be changed on a regular basis. Maintenance schedules predicated upon the exact chemical mixture of their working environment are included in the line's warranty terms. Due to normal growth variation, some Henrys exhibit issues with musculoskeletal detachment. Routine quality assurance verifies tendon integrity on all specimens, but in those instances where the ligatures are questionable, reinforcing composite structures are surgically added to eliminate concerns about long-term integrity. Most clones of this line have at least two composite tendons implanted prior to release to the owners. Standard warranty coverage includes surgical repair for the clones, which can be routinely performed at a Gentechi copy center. Henry model, mining class. Surgically implanted nasal and tracheal filters. Particulate filters are customized to the unique needs of the Henry android and are relatively interchangeable. Most filter models can be exchanged non-surgically for maximum workplace adaptability. Regular maintenance and exchange of the filters is required by warranty. Respiracytes for improved cardiovascular efficiency. Increased fast twitch muscle. Fast twitch muscle, as distinct from slow twitch muscle, is primarily responsible for a muscle's physical strength. Henry clones have increased type 2A and 2X muscle fibers for increased strength with minimal loss of endurance. Surgically neutered for reduced aggression. The Henry genotype has heightened testosterone production during all growth stages to aid in the development of muscle mass. The testes are removed prior to sale to ensure the android remains compliant, docile, and sociable with other clones. Testosterone supplements are recommended to keep the android in prime condition. Increased recovery rate and metabolism. Henry clones heal quickly and have increased endurance. The heightened Henry metabolism breaks down lactic acid at a high rate, preventing muscle fatigue and repairing inevitable tissue damage from work within normal parameters. Even short rests are sufficient to restore the android to prime condition. Heightened bone density. The Henry clone's enhanced strength and rigorous workload can put great strain on the android's skeletal system, 
the unit's bones have increased density and durability to compensate. Tendons may also tear under the stress, and surgical replacements are available. Proprietary proteins for improved recovery and performance. Henry's DNA is sourced from over two dozen of the strongest and toughest humans ever to live, as well as gorillas, crocodilians, and other formidable members of the animal kingdom. The name Henry derives from the ancient American folktale of a steel-driving man. John Henry was able to outperform the machine designed to take his job, thereby proving the power and resilience of real flesh and bone.